Hello folks this is Watchstar podcast series where we talk to the top class achievers in tech and take a peek at the secrets to their excellence Today my guest is Adam Feinberg Adam is a leading engineer in the Silicon Valley with diverse interests both inside and outside of technology and expertise in several fields too He has led innovations at places like Apple Amazon Palm and many many more He's a flight geek who flies too. I thoroughly enjoyed talking to him about various topics including all the tools he uses, the model for thinking. So without further ado, let's welcome Adam Feinberg. Welcome Adam, thank you for obliging my request. My pleasure. Let's start with your background. Why do you call yourself an engineer? Ah, uh, why do I call myself an engineer? <laughs> that's a great question, but it's mostly because I like building things and that started when I was a really little kid. Uh-huh. I used to take apart everything around the house. Um and my father used to tell me that the reason he knew I was going to be an engineer was because I could actually put it all back together after oh. I took it apart. Yeah, the only thing that I ever had trouble putting back together, I took apart um uh what do you call it a a a mixer that you use when you're baking. Mm. Uh my mother had just bought it and went out of the house on the weekend right after buying it it was brand new and I took it all apart and took quite a bit of time getting that one back together but <laughs> everything else I was able to put back together. Uh but as far as my background I started off as a mechanical engineer mm-hmm. uh primarily looking to do aerodynamics. Uh spent uh some time well I did that as my undergrad and then I spent some time working in that field. um although not doing what i wanted to do really which was design airplanes because the oh. the airplane industry had basically collapsed in the mid 80s um but i worked for rca astroelectronics designing satellites uh so used not so much of the aerodynamics but a lot of the other uh uh work that i had learned as an undergrad uh but at that point everything was moving over to computers and i decided to uh, go back and do my graduate work in electrical engineering hmm. um and it was electrical and computer engineering and i mostly focused on computers and digital signal processing mm-hmm. um when i when i did my phd i focused on the applications of digital signal processing to machine learning or what we today call machine learning at the time we called pattern recognition. Oh, I so I specifically worked on speech recognition, handwriting recognition and computer vision. So this was in the in the uh late 80s and early 90s. Was it just pure digital signals? Was it Well, I mean, uh, you know, w- when we were doing speech recognition, you know, obviously speech itself is an analog signal, but we right. pass it through um an A to D converter end up with uh a 16 bit 16 kilohertz signal. um then apply some digital signal processing to it right. uh mostly what you want to do is you want to extract the key frequencies that are in the signal right. um and what that enables you to do is identify characteristics of the vocal track model um that's used to produce these sounds and mm-hmm. it falls into two different things one is called the formants of the speech which are sort of the poles of the filter mm. um and then the excitation which is either noise or pitch mm. uh so you estimate all of those attributes and then feed them into a model and use that to estimate what the you know what sounds the the person was making and then model it into you know into a language model where you have words and and the probability of words following other words into sentences and then you try and understand what they you know what what those words mean oh and how much was this uh 
a software versus hardware component in the system? Uh, for the most part, it was all software once you had the digi digitized speech. Mm -hmm. uh, the only times that uh, it involved hardware was uh, in a couple of uh, projects that I did we built some of the front-end digital signal processing into custom hardware mm. uh, just to uh, be able to speed up the processing because back then computers weren't very fast. <laughs> so, um, you know, we, we did what we could. The uh, statistical modeling that made up how we determined the, the mapping from those feature vectors to the sounds uh, was, was all done in software, though. Uh, okay, just for the people listening, uh, what do you do today? Uh, what do I do today? If somebody asked you, um, yeah. So what I how I generally describe myself as um, as a software and systems architect responsible for uh, developing architectures that enable um, new technologies on resource constrained devices. Mm. Uh, that's pretty much been the thing that I focused on the most is you know embedded type devices where you have a lot of resource constraints and you have to be really careful about how you make use of that. Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, as you said, today the systems, uh, embedded systems are not really embedded systems in the traditional sense. They're far more capable than what things used to be. Uh, but you were involved, it seems like, just going by your track record, you were involved with very early work in Palm, which kind of, a lot of people argue that Palm was basically the precursor. Devices coming out of Palm were basically the precursor to what's today is. Uh, yeah, all the smartphone revolution mm -hmm. and handheld device revolution. So what did you work in Palm and how far? Uh, right, so I joined Palm later on, so I wasn't in sort of the early group that did the Palm Pilot work. Mm -hmm. um, I, I joined Palm specifically to build WebOS, mm. which was the uh, operating system for their smartphone, mm -hmm. the competitor against the iPhone, right. essentially. Uh, and I was the chief architect for WebOS, mostly responsible, again, for figuring out how to, uh, how to build all of those features into this extremely resource-constrained device. Right. And we built a lot of really interesting features that mm -hmm. uh, many of which still don't exist mm -hmm. in, in modern smartphone operating systems. But a lot of the, uh, the uh, user interface metaphor that we developed there is actually used today. So the whole cards metaphor, if you look at iOS with its ability to display multiple cards stacked next to each other and you can swipe them back and forth and you can flick them away, all of that came from Palm's uh, UI. Uh, but the, you know, there were some key things that we did that you, know, you still don't see today and the, probably the main one was it was a true multitasking operating system. So you could have multiple applications running on your phone at the same time and they uh, they didn't need to know about each other, so it wasn't cooperative multitasking, but they informed the operating system about the types of uh, operations they were going to do, so that way we could do very uh, fine-grained scheduling of the resource needs for all of them. Mm -hmm. And there was obviously a lot of tricks we had to do to make it seem like things were operating faster than they were mm -hmm. um, and updating when, uh, as you were bringing things to the foreground, we would refresh the uh, the screen, whereas we weren't necessarily allowing the draws into the into the background buffers. Mm -hmm. uh, so there was a, a lot of work that went on in order to allow the applications to truly multitask, uh, but constrain what they were able to do so that they were able to run without stepping on each other, but still provide the user experience that was needed. 
Yeah, I remember uh, in in one of my earlier uh, gigs, I we were I was on the other side of uh, WebOS development, where we were providing uh, backend support for the WebOS developers hmm. uh, from the device side a little bit. So it, it always looked cool, uh, but yeah, you know, uh, I guess it was some bit of it was also like uh, maybe marketing. Uh, well, there was there were there were certainly business problems. Right. Okay. Um, marketing was part of it primarily when uh, when the phone started selling on Verizon. Most of the marketing was done by Verizon rather than by Palm, so mm -hmm. there was a little bit of disconnect maybe in the messaging there. Uh, but it was also just very hard to compete with Apple and Google. Mm -hmm. um, and I think our biggest problem in that regard was we didn't do an, uh, a good enough job early enough on third-party developer tools. Right. Okay. I see. So would that be the biggest takeaway for the team who worked on uh, Palm OS, uh, sorry, Web OS? I, I think that probably is. Um, I think everyone who worked on that project was incredibly proud of the the technology that was developed and how successful it was and how how, how enjoyable it was to right, use. It always looked really good compared to the then Android, uh, especially then Android, which yes. was particularly awful looking. Right. Um, uh, and iOS was not not uh, you know really pretty either. It was probably the best looking in terms of for an end user who's uh, who's interested in shiny things, but. Uh, WebOS always looked really, really uh, s uh, sleek. And I also think it was the best operating um, system mm -hmm. in, in terms of, you know, when you actually were doing operations, mm -hmm. uh, I think from a performance point of view, from uh, an accessibility to all of the hardware resources, and, you know, f just from an API point of view for a developer, in the ease at which a developer could develop an app, I thought it was superior. Mm -hmm. Having said that, though, uh, by not having third-party developer tools early enough, mm. we didn't have the apps that people wanted to make use of. Mm. And, um, you know, without the apps, the device is, you know, is, isn't going to succeed. But do you think now it's it's the opposite problem where uh, there are too many application platforms for third-party developers on way too many things, right? Uh, Basically, everybody's trying to become a platform for developers rather than uh, when there truly ought to be a specific application that just user has to consume. Uh, you know, every every Tom, Dick, and Harry has a data platform, data computation platform. Uh, I, I think that's true, and I think especially uh, the. Um, the platforms and the frameworks and all that trying to allow you to write an application once for iOS and Android, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of them, and they all have their strengths and their weaknesses. And it's really hard to be able to do something in a way that you can write it once and really do a good job of representing it on both platforms, because the platforms are just inherently so different. Mm. Um, but I think there's... I think that in general, uh, the proliferation of developer tools and developer platforms has made it uh, significantly easier to get something out into uh, customers' hands very, very quickly. Right. I've done a lot of startups over the years, and you know that was a real benefit uh, when being at a startup because you could leverage these uh, tools and these frameworks that other people were doing to build 
you know, your custom, uh, you know, secret sauce mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in ways that was very efficient, very quick to develop. And, you know, sure, you, you know, you were uh, paying them for, you know, for, for making use of it in some cases. Sometimes, of course, it was open source. Um, but you were able to get to market so much quicker. You were right. able to get customer feedback so much quicker, right. which en- enabled you to go and iterate and try and meet the customer needs much quicker. Right, right. I mean, of, of course, the poster child for all this is AWS. You don't need your own server farm anymore. Right? Exactly. I mean, a thing of the past. My last startup, we made ex- extensive use of AWS, and you know, not just for oh, we have a lot of compute to do, but we were dealing with real-time media over the internet, and that was something that was worldwide, so we made use of all of the regions. We actually had servers set up in every region that uh, AWS provides, and that's something that as a startup, there was no way we could have done our, right. on our own. It just, right. you know, it, it's just not possible to go and actually you know, put servers in POPs all around the world. Right, so you mentioned a lot of startups. Mm-hmm. What would be uh, your pick of the lot that you were that you were particularly happy with the outcome of not just not financially necessarily just technologically or idea wise anything that you can pick um it's kind of funny because probably the in in some ways the ones that i was most happy with from a technology point of view are the ones that had uh, the worst outcomes uh, <laughs> financially. Right. Um, the very first startup I did, and this was, you know, a very very long time ago. We're talking about 1987, I think it was, or maybe 88, sometime around there, uh-huh. um, when PCs were just becoming common in offices. Right. Uh, I remember one day my sister coming home. She wor- she worked at American Express, and she said to me, "Oh, I just got this great new PC on my desk. I have to wait a month until they come and uh, run a network cable to my office, oh, wow. because there was no cabling in the buildings for networking at the time, and there was no Wi-Fi at that point." Oh. Um, and I thought about the problem for a little while, and I said, "I don't really understand why they need to run a cable to your office. They already have a cable running to your office. You." Plug, you know, you plug into things for power. Right. So we actually built a system that enabled us to run um, 16 different subnets of 10 megabit Ethernet over power lines. And uh, at the time, this hadn't been done. This was before, you know, there's bef- before the current uh, models for uh, Ethernet over power. Um, but we ran into a problem. Uh, back then with the FCC hmm. because of uh, radiated emissions. When Once you do that, every outlet uh, essentially becomes an antenna hmm. and you're radiating all over the place. And oh, at the time, the FCC wasn't willing. They, they didn't understand networking mm-hmm. uh, really uh, at the time, computer networking. So Not many people did. Right. They weren't willing to go and, and change the rules to, to allow this. So I thought that was great technology that we developed. I thought it was really the right technology for the market. It just was the wrong time, and we weren't able to uh, to move it forward, but it was extremely successful. Mm-hmm. Another example of that was um, in 2002, uh, I was at a startup where we built a system for um, enabling, enabling you to make use of shared compute resources uh, in order to run different workloads. Mm-hmm exactly like what AWS does today. Uh, but we were building it mostly for, you know, what you would probably today call a private cloud model. Mm-hmm. So this was infrastructure that you'd deploy within your own data center, 
uh, as a company, and it would allow you to virtualize all of your assets, and then you could, you know, uh, exactly, you could deploy the workloads as needed. Um, we did all of that, and technolo technologically, it was very successful. The problem we had was the structure in companies for how they went and bought IT was very um, arcane. So essentially what would happen is you had one, per, you know, one silo that was responsible for buying compute, another silo that was responsible for storage, and another silo that was responsible for networking. Right. And we were really cutting across all of them because we were virtualizing all three. And we had a very hard time uh, explaining the technology in a way that they could understand and getting to the right level of person who could actually see across all these silos and say, hey, we could do something better by merging it all together. Mm -hmm. um, that, uh, you know, we were, we were reasonably successful, you know, at the time in, in terms of acquiring customers, but not enough to actually build a real business on it. Mm -hmm. um, and again, it was one of those things that was just a little bit, you know, at the, at great technology, but at the wrong time. Hey there. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Watchstar podcast series. And I have one small request. Please subscribe on your favorite podcast sourcer or head on over to the Watchstar podcast website, which is www.watchstarpodcast.com or www.mycpu.org for more audio and articles. Thank you. Until next time. Bye-bye.